This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. The impact of federal loan programs in relation to the massive debt of legal grads and their dim prospects for repayment is a critical issue for the legal profession as it continues to navigate changing dynamics, a paradigm shift. I'm Rachel Zahorsky of the ABA Journal, and today I'm joined by Deans Craig Boyce of Cleveland Marshall College of Law at Cleveland State University, Paul McGreal of the University of Dayton School of Law, and Washington University Law Professor Brian Tamanaha, author of the forthcoming book, Failing Law Schools. We'll explore the merits of the law school bubble story, examine disagreeing views, and hopefully continue the thought-provoking discussion fueled by the nearly 200 commenters on the piece on abajournal.com. Dean McGreal, would you like to begin today's discussion with your thoughts on the consequences of a law school bubble and ways law schools can combat the situation? Sure. Uh, when I read through the article again, and I've read it through uh, several times, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Um, one of the uh, sort of the elephant in the room for me uh, when I read through this and, and in other discussions regarding legal education and cons- uh, the, the very legitimate concerns about uh, debt load is cost of uh, legal education because uh, access is uh, clearly linked to uh, cost. And cost is driven oftentimes, in fact, in higher education generally, but then also in legal education specifically, uh, by personnel costs. Overwhelmingly, um, the, the, the cost that uh, a, a higher education institution faces is in its uh, faculty, staff, um, those uh, personnel that, it, uh, that work for it. Uh, and personnel on the uh, faculty side, um, and again, we don't talk about this very often, uh, is driven by the workload that faculty uh, have. Uh, and so to the degree that uh, we need to cover a certain number of classes uh, within a, uh, any institution of higher education but also law schools, uh, we, uh, the, the number of classes that we ask faculty to teach, uh, uh, and again, the, certain number, the curriculum we need to cover, uh, will drive the number of faculty that we have to hire to, to cover that. Uh, and then also the number that we uh, are expected to have that are full-time versus adjunct or part-time will affect that. Uh, that cost as well. Uh, but certainly, if we are asking faculty to teach uh, four courses uh, in any given year, or if there's a push to have faculty teach fewer courses to undertake, whether it's more research or service, um, that's going to push up the number of faculty we have to have to cover uh, a certain curriculum. Uh, so workload is directly related to number of personnel, and that's directly related to cost. Uh, and with most law schools being uh, tuition-driven, that cost is going to be borne by those who pay the tuition. Um, and so one of the things that, again, I think a lot of these conversations doesn't get talked about directly is uh, the way we uh, configure uh, faculty workloads uh, and faculty expectations uh, is going to directly drive the cost uh, that students pay through tuition and is financed through uh, the student loans that they receive. And so if we're going to talk about reducing cost, uh, overwhelmingly we're going to be looking at uh, this cost savings coming in staffing uh, and in faculty workload. Uh, and what that means for, uh, for, for the academy, uh, legal academy overall. Uh, so, for example, uh, if we all take a standard model uh, of equal uh, weight on teaching, research, and service, uh, then we're all staffing in a very similar way. And if there's a pressure 
for whatever reason it is, it's a pursuit of reputation, uh, and whether that's tied to U.S. news or not, and there's a belief that that's tied to faculty research, then the push is actually in a in the direction of a more costly model, uh, which is less faculty teaching, uh, which uh, drives up the, the number of faculty that must be hired to cover courses and further drives up tuition. Uh, if we are uh, want to be creative, we have to think about, I think, think about uh, – restructuring the faculty workload at some schools. I mean, not every school should, there should not be a one-size-fits-all model, uh, and schools should be thinking uh, actively uh, about what faculty workload should look like for their particular institution, uh, for their mission, uh, and where they, uh, and what is responsible in terms of the, the debt load and the cost that their students can undertake. Uh, now, there's going to be some pressure from the ABA in terms of the uh, faculty-student ratios, uh, th which are not required, but there are certain presumptive bands. Um, to be safest, uh, my recollection is you have to be, uh, meaning that the ABA presumes that your faculty-student ratio is acceptable, is below uh, 20 to 1, uh, and then in between 20 to 30 to 1, um, there will be some sort of scrutiny, and then above 30 to 1, there will be uh, faculty-student ratio. There's a presumption that you're not in compliance. And so if you want to avoid... Uh, any scrutiny at an ABA site inspection, you prudently keep it below 20 to 1. So there's that sort of pressure in the accreditation process, uh, not directly, um, but sort of indirectly uh, that uh, that may affect workload. Uh, and then even if we decided today, if I decided that, or any law school decided that it was going to change faculty workload today, uh, the bottom line is we have a certain number of faculty, um, then that's not going to change until there is turnover on the faculty through faculty taking lateral positions or retirement. Uh, I've had a faculty member tell me, well, if we change the workload, then we'll just have more courses. Uh, we're adequately staffed for the courses we need now. Well, what are we going to have these people teach? Uh, and that's just a recognition that, uh, that personnel turnover in academia can be slow. And so it may be that you wait till a generational changeover point if you're going to make this change in staffing. But that may be, the, to me, uh, one of the, the big concerns is that if we need to, to, to change the cost structure, to change the pricing uh, for legal education, if it's going to require a different staffing model, uh, will we be able to do that in time uh, if this pressure comes sooner rather than later? Uh, but again, to me, that's uh, when I read uh, this story in particular, but other stories about uh, concerns about the cost of legal education, I immediately come back to um, uh, what is the big driver of cost uh, and uh, and how that and the the ways in which that has to change. The issue of how many faculty and, and the cost, the overhead of faculty, is something that's often brought up when determining what the law law school budget could be, should be the rising cost of tuition, and as well from what I'm hearing from those within the profession, the demand for a more practical based. Uh, uh, education, which would entail more clinic opportunities, tend to be much smaller, um, also seems to be a factor that is going to drive up costs um, rather than lower them. Uh, Dean Boyce, are there, what, did you have any thoughts when you read the article of what perhaps was missing in that discussion or uh, any agreement with something that was identified in the article for schools to take a closer look at? Well, yes, Rachel. Um uh, and, and I have uh, read the article a couple of times uh, as well. I guess I, I come out a little differently in terms of assessing the problem um, uh, than Dean McGreal. Um, he, he's absolutely correct that the, there's the cost of education. Uh, law school education has increased, uh, continues to rise. Um, some, it will continue to rise even in the environment in which we 
uh, find ourselves now uh, simply because of the need for for law schools to um, uh, be able to cover uh, costs with smaller numbers of students coming in the door. Uh, uh, I guess the what, where I uh, have a little bit different approach is that I don't think that the cost is something that can be addressed across the board sort of in a universal fashion. I think that law schools across the country are addressing it individually in individual ways. Uh, but I see that the focus on the cost of law school education uh, as, as, as not being the right focus. You know, this article compares um, the uh, potential for a law school student loan default um, to the mortgage uh, crisis and uh, the, the bubble on, on housing uh, mortgages. Um, and I think we would not look uh, at a mortgage bubble problem and say, you know, what we need to do is figure out how to make houses cheaper. I think what the, the problem is that there were too many houses, and I think that's the problem in legal education. There are simply uh, too many graduates of law schools for the number of jobs that are out there and that are likely to be out there in the, in the next five to ten years. Um, and so the, the, the solution to that is sort of as a supply and demand issue, and the solution to that is to uh, reduce the supply of lawyers. And I think that that's already happening. I mean, this is this is um, um, pretty clear that uh, law schools across the country are admitting uh, substantially lower numbers of students than they did two years ago or three years ago in response um, uh, to the drawing up of demand for legal education. Do you feel that that is a gatekeeping move on behalf of law schools or that just the natures of supply and demand are at play and that students have, are choosing to not go to law school because that no longer seems like the best option given the current economic conditions at this time? And so it's the markets at play rather than an active gatekeeping by law schools saying we need to admit fewer students to help preserve the integrity of the marketplace and the profession. No, it's absolutely the market, and uh, uh, law schools are responding um, uh, by competing uh, for the smaller pool of uh, law students that are out there, and I think that's where the innovation will come from, and I think that's where you'll f perhaps finally begin to see uh, law schools differentiate what they provide in terms of legal education. You know, unfortunately, as, as um, uh, Bill Henderson has, has spent a lot of time talking about, the U.S. News rankings have uh, essentially applied a single standard to every law school across the country so that uh, Cleveland State University's Cleveland Marshall College of Law, where I'm the dean, is measured uh, in, in relation to its performance against the same standard as, as Harvard, Yale, um, University of Chicago, where I went to law school. And, and those schools have very different missions, very different uh, profiles in terms of their student body. Um, and uh, so there's the, so this has driven uh, everyone to emulate a few schools at the top, and, and perhaps now with um, a much smaller um, pool of law school applicants, uh, we'll begin to see law schools really focus on doing the things that they can individually do uh, best, where they have um, you know a, a strategic advantage, where they innovate in ways that other law schools don't. And as far as the duty of, of law schools, when we would discuss what the purpose is of a legal education, often said that the purpose of a legal education, the purpose of the faculty, the other academics, the administration, is to best prepare students 
to compete in the marketplace to best prepare them for a, a career either in law or to use those skills that they've learned to pursue other career options. It's not discussed that the job of the law school is to find these students a job. When you start to get to the point where the market is what it is and students have invested so much and feel that they've been made a promise, which is the exact phrasing I get from many students who call, whether that's a correct perception or not, this is how they're feeling. What role is it of the law school? What is their duty to their students at that point? And, and does that change? And has the duty of law schools to their perspective uh, students, their student body right now, and those recent graduates, has that changed over the last couple of years? And will we see a greater demand for that acknowledgement that perhaps the duty is a little bit different now? Well, I, I think that law schools have an ethical obligation to assist their students when, when we enter uh, periods like this. Um, but I don't see a law school education as being singularly about um, getting someone into a law firm job. And I think that's uh, where there's been a bit of a disconnect in terms of student um, expectations and 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 also uh, just keep thinking about what a law school uh, law degree uh, what a law degree is about. Uh, you know we have um, literally thousands of um, our alums uh, who've never used their law school degree or or used their law school degree for only a short time. Uh, in, in the practice of law, um, in, in, in a sort of traditional law firm uh, type of job. And so, you know, it, it's interesting. We are providing, we are de degree-granting institutions. We provide a law degree. Um, and I think that our obligation in that regard stops short of requiring uh, us to ensure that our graduates all have jobs. And we have a very active um, Office of Career Planning. So it's very proactive in terms of going out and finding opportunities for students. And in fact, um, uh, Cleveland Marshall has the highest percentage of graduates among all Ohio public law schools that uh, have jobs that require their JD, and we're, we're, we're very proud of that. But um, we're at roughly 67%. Um, and so there are a lot of, um, uh, there, there, there's a lot of work still to be done. Uh, but I don't believe that the goal of law school ought to be uh, to um, uh, find every student a job. And I don't think that uh, every student comes to law school with that uh, expectation or with that kind of clarity about what they want to do with their law degree. Uh, Professor Tamanaha, I'd love to ask for you to jump in the conversation. You've written um, extensively about the conditions facing graduates, particularly focus on the debt load and whether or not those students will actually be able to earn enough to manage their monthly student loan payments um, and what's going to happen to all of these economic casualties of the market, and especially those that have graduated in the last couple of years and those that are about to graduate. Um, I'd love to have you jump in the conversation now on what you see as the important issues that law schools need to identify and what are the things that could be done to help ease some of this, um, some of these these issues that students and recent graduates are facing? Uh, you identified what I think is the fundamental issue. That is the the amount of debt that students are graduating with uh, and the, the income that they earn on average and, and, and the fundamental mismatch between that debt load 
and that income. So just to use a number that, that you produced in your own article, the average debt is uh, $98,500. The the median job uh, for 2010 was 63,000, and if you earned the median income and you had the average debt, you couldn't make your monthly loan payments. Uh, now this is a fundamental m mismatch in the in the cost and the return on it. Uh, so, and this ties into things both Dean uh, Boys and McGreal said, much of which I agree with. Um, but this is a systemic problem. That is, we cost too much for the economic opportunities they get in return. And so when Dean McGreal talks about costs, and, and, and I think correctly says that the cost is in the faculty, and so that's a problem because it's, it's very difficult to trim faculty costs. While that's all correct, ultimately it seems to me uh, these changes will be forced on us, whether we, uh, whether we want to or not. And, now, how that will come about, I believe, will be a combination of the continued fall in applicants as well as some adjustments to the federal loan program, and all of this was alluded to in your article. Uh, in terms of what uh, Dean Boyce said, it's, it's not clear to me that, that schools downsizing will be sufficient to deal with the oversupply problem. The numbers I have, and this comes out of the... Bureau of Labor Statistics suggests that we uh, we have systematically produced about a third more uh, law graduates than than available lawyer jobs, at least going back 10 years. And the suggestion that that I think law schools often make is that uh, while well, they're doing other good things with their degree, I've been unable to 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 get any good information about this. I mean, we all we all I know graduates who became FBI agents and and accountants, but I don't know that many of them. Uh, uh, and otherwise, it's not clear what they're doing. And and as we have uh, seen in recent news reports, many of them are you know working uh, menial labor in just regular positions that had nothing to do with their law degree. So the so the problem really I think is is fundamental and and I don't think it'll come down to voluntary changes. Uh, I think these changes will be forced on us. Now, what that might look like in the end is impossible to say, but it does seem that uh, things will not continue, and whatever happens, it, it will be uh, quite devastating to law schools. Uh, Dean Boyce and Dean McGreal, when we talk about the changes that are being forced upon schools, and we've already seen different curriculums at schools starting to change to be more practical-based. We've seen other alternatives, a two-year program being instituted at some schools. It seems that law schools are trying to figure out ways to adapt to the needs of the market. What do you think are going to be some of the biggest changes that we will see, and what, what will be the most painful changes to come and perhaps what are things that could be easy for students or schools to to change and adjust and help the situation to improve that perhaps we're not looking at close enough. Uh, Dean McGrill, would you like to go first? Sure, um, and I'll sort of preface that with, um, in part, uh, picking up on something that uh, Brian said that ties into what Craig said. I mean, I do. I mean, clearly there is a contraction in the number of um, seats that are available in law schools, and I. Uh, agree with Brian that it, uh, at the end of the day it may not be enough in terms of correcting the oversupply. And, but another thing I should be um, clear about is I think even if we get to a, a, 
um, a, a balance in supply and demand for lawyers. Uh, I still think, and this is why I sort of didn't address the supply and demand thing uh, initially, because I agree that there is an imbalance, um, is that uh, it's still too expensive. Um, and I think that goes back to Brian's point, is even if we have that right balance, um, if it costs more than uh, at the end of the day, then students can repay their loans, uh, and they're not getting jobs that can repay their loans, that's still the problem, um, that even if the demand and supplier are are in line there, and that's why I focused on uh, cost and talking about it. Uh, and so the challenge is how do you provide the, the skills um, that, uh, that uh, the profession is demanding um, and that uh, and at a, a level that doesn't break the bank? Uh, and, and to me, part of it is uh, a concern that uh, when we talk about skills training, uh, there's no way that I think a law school can you know, staff itself to provide uh, the variety of training and the variety of uh, of skills that have been expected and that were provided by the typical apprenticeship mentorship um, that has occurred in practice. And I'm reminded of a conversation at one of the uh, at, at a professional legal academic meeting where you know someone starts off with the obvious of well you know I've had students say they wish they drafted a contract in law school and we can agree that well that's probably a good idea they should have done something like that and and uh, an appellate brief and then someone says you know I had a student who told me I wish I'd, I'd uh, or graduate, I wish I drafted an environmental impact statement. And it's like, oh, well, I'm not sure how we could provide the, the true panoply of all the different um, type of experiences, especially when a, a lawyer's career evolves over time. And what that's pushed me to is, um, actually, I've had a conversation with a law firm uh, within Ohio where what they did was some very interesting work in identifying the skills that they expected uh, their attorneys to have at different levels of development, uh, 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 new associate, mid-tier associate, senior associate, in the different practice groups. And it was a tremendously rich rubric of what they expected. Uh, that gives me something to maybe talk to them about uh, some sort of apprenticeship model for the third year of law school, uh, some sort of, whether it's like a residency in, in uh in medical school, but finding some sort of partnership where the firm, where the employers, those out in practice, can articulate for us the skills that they're looking for, and then partner with us to provide that education uh, in the third tier of law, uh, the third, third third year of law school. Um, that type of working relationship with the practice, uh, I, I think, is a, a completely unexplored area. There have been some employers, uh, from what I've heard or read about, usually it's been uh, in-house legal counsel that have tried to partner with law schools to provide that type of training. Uh, but that's, I think, one of the creative solutions where it wouldn't add to the staffing of the law school, but you could work with uh, a law firm to identify uh, training that could occur during that third year that would make someone closer to being billable, given the skills that they need. Uh, and in fact, even if uh, the law firm doesn't uh, hire absorb um, a certain number or more than a certain number of graduates, uh, the students who've gone through that type of apprenticeship program could have on their resume that, according to this law firm, they are now a the equivalent of finishing their first year as an associate and have that credential um, in addition to the JD when they leave law school. But again, this is something where I think there need to be conversations between law schools and the practicing bar about how we can partner instead of pointing fingers at each other about you're not doing enough. Well, it's not our problem. Dean Boyce. Yeah, I, I, um, I just want to say something um, uh, about the supply and demand issue. Um, I think that that uh, uh, competition where um, we're seeing uh, too too few applicants for the number of law schools we have can also address the cost issue. So it's not simply about uh, can 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 we reduce the supply of lawyers, but I think that this um, this diminished pool of applicants 
will lead to innovation by law schools, and I think that what you'll see is that there will be uh, a, a greater demand for a less expensive legal education. And, um, and, and so I think as prospective students are beginning to look much more closely at the value proposition of the, the legal education, uh, schools are able to um, uh, provide a legal education coupled with a high level of um, employment among grads uh, should have a strategic advantage. My, my point about uh, cost is simply that we, it's not something we can address globally uh, at every law school universally. It's a, it, those, those sorts of cost decisions are extremely uh, individual by school. They relate to the extent to which a central, first of all, whether a school is public or private, uh, public schools, um, some have greater or, or lesser uh, funding from the state. Private schools have universities that are more or less willing to uh, make an investment in the law school. And so those decisions are very, um, very individual. Um, you know, changing uh, ADA rules about um, student-faculty ratios and so forth is, is one area to tweak, I think, on the margins. But I think um, that at the end of the day, every law school is figuring out how to balance its budget, how to satisfy uh, its central university. And, uh, and making decisions about how to cut costs on that basis, not about more universally whether all professors make too much uh, money. Um, and and I, I agree with what uh, Dean McGreal said. You know, we are being asked as law schools to do uh, to do more to train uh, our, our graduates to practice law. And I think in in some respects, uh, the expectations are unrealistic about what a law school. Uh, can do. After all, um, you know, we've had a model where um, law schools have done what we do, uh, and law firms pick up the training by adding the practical experience in, in real-life situations that has worked pretty well for quite some time. It's come under um, increased pressure in the last five to ten years as, as clients of firms have become more cost-conscious and are, are looking to shave those costs by um, demanding that law firms uh, not build the training to the client. Um, so that, that has in turn caused law firms to look to law schools to, to do what uh, law firms used to do. And I think that we're not well equipped to do um, the practical training um, uh, except as a way of introducing law students to the sorts of things that lawyers actually do in practice. We can't replicate a law firm environment, even in a clinic, and provide really relevant uh, practical experience for our, our students as they're going through law school. What we've done at Cleveland Marshall is um, created a, a number of external clinics where our students work with um, uh, outside supervising attorneys on, on particular projects uh, that relate to different subject areas of law. So it might be environmental law, uh, it might be a uh, an estates and trusts uh, external clinic, the point being to give them as much uh, of an experience of real practice as possible. Uh, but the truth is that much of that training is still going to have to happen uh, in the practice setting. Um, you know, young lawyers will, will make mistakes. They will they will learn on the job, and, and that's, I, I think, not fundamentally going to change. Uh, so, you know, we will continue to try and figure out um, you know, there's, there's a lot of structural change going on in the practice of law, as, as Bill and others have, have written about. And, 
you know, I think it's it's important for us to figure out where the practice of law is going, what the practice of law is going to look like uh, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, and try and get in front of that and and uh, be positioned to prepare law school, law school students accordingly. Um, Professor Tamanaha, you've mentioned in some of your reports um, that we've reached a critical point where change is no longer something that we should be looking at, perhaps something that will be good for, for the profession, but the need for change, like it or not, is here right now. Now, we all know in academic institutions, any, any sort of an institution implementing change, determining what's the best course of action, and then executing that course takes time. There has to be a lot of discussion. Law schools are doing that right now as they're adapting different programs, you know, at different conferences, talking about what's the best way to proceed. Law firms are part of that discussion. In that, in that interim, though, of where we actually start to see a, a movement, you know, a more sweeping movement to change rather than a gradual movement, what happens to those students who are graduating this year or those who graduated last year? There seems to be, there is a lot of concern for this lost generation of lawyers. Um, and, and how do we address that? And is there something that can be addressed for the people that are in that position right now? Yeah, the situation is so bad. By that I mean the economics are so skewed, the costs relative to what you get in return, that, that I, I don't know that anything can be done uh, for people in this position. Uh, it's unfortunate. And, I mean, up until now, up until this year, actually, I think law schools themselves have been insulated from the consequences of this. Now, with the with the news, uh, the coverage by the New York Times, uh, with the news about the lawsuits, uh, finally uh, law schools have turned. I mean, there's a lot of self-examination now, and, and uh, unfortunately, we should have done this five years ago. Uh, it's only when... Um, we began to feel the consequences of this. I think that we we sat up and started paying attention. Uh, we're, we're talk, it's difficult to talk about because there are a lot of different things that we're discussing. You know, delivering uh, education that they that they need to be a lawyer at a reasonable cost is what it comes down to. But there are different pieces of this. Uh, but one thing I, I mean, I think it's not. At some point, it won't be what we want to do it's what we have to do and that's where i think uh, law schools the position that law schools will be in soon and by that i want to agree with something uh, dean boy said if if the number of applicants continues to fall uh that's going to affect price but in a different way it's going to affect price because we will have to discount all the way through the class as a number of law schools are doing already and what i mean by that is you can have a listed tuition price, but if, if everyone gets a scholarship, and this happened with Illinois in the entering class for 2011, everyone, including everyone off the wait list, got a scholarship. That means you have a de facto tuition reduction. And to the extent that law schools are, are forced by people unwilling to come without discounts uh, to do this to greater and greater extent uh, through the class, up until now, law schools have mainly given scholarships to the top half of the class. This is a for the purposes of shaping their LSAT median. But uh, when you're in a position where you can't even fill your seats, you're going to discount deeper into the class because you'd rather have some tuition dollar rather than none. Uh, and that is a different way of adjusting the cost mismatch. And, and it, when, when we head in that direction, law schools will face two uh, 
crunch from two different directions, fewer bodies in the seats, and then fewer dollars per body. And now the question that law schools will have to face is, well, how do we run? You know, we, we have to match our expenses and, and our revenue. And Dean McGrill suggested that, you know, well, we, we have four credits. I, I uh, Law professors through most of the four, four classes, for, for most of the 20th century, taught 15 credits, 14 and a half to 15 credits. We are now down under 12 credits. Uh, I mean, changes of that nature, that is, teach more, uh, but obviously we'll also have to lose uh, staff, and this is a, this is a difficult problem. How, how do we get professors to leave? And this is when issues like tenure come up, and uh, issues like uh, adjusting the Age Discrimination Act to allow schools to have, uh, to have professors retire at age 70. It has to be a combination of all these things. Uh, and then ultimately what no one's talking about uh, is reducing professor pay. And we, we continually talk about, well, if pay is too low, uh, we can't find people who, who want to become professors. I, ju I just don't believe that. I mean, there's a great demand for these positions because, frankly, they're wonderful jobs to have. And uh, if the economics of it require that a school cut professor pay or go under, uh, professor pay will be cut. So this is what I mean by a quite dramatic shift. Now, now, the impact of all of these things, if they work out this way, will be to reduce the price. I mean, the, the fundamental economic mismatch has, can't, won't be solved without something quite dramatic on the order of which I'm talking about. Uh, so I see it, I don't want to say in more apocalyptic terms, but in some ways I do. And, and this includes some law schools going out of business. Uh, and the ones that remain trim their operation. Now, I want to emphasize something that both deans said, and that is, law schools are not all in the same position. I'm not. What 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 each school has to do on its own terms will differ depending upon its position in the local market, depending on the economic return of its students. A public school like Cleveland Marshall is quite reasonably, uh, uh, more reasonably. Uh, in proportion to how much students have to pay, places very strong in the Cleveland. In Cleveland, so a school like that is better positioned to make these changes. Uh, there are very expensive private schools that that don't deliver. There are schools I'll just tell you that had 30% of their lawyers get jobs. 30% uh, of their graduates get jobs as lawyers. That's schools like that, uh, and and its tuition is $40,000. Schools like that are are I don't know what they can do. To change the value proposition for their students. So this is a this is a very individual thing. We are all affected in the sense that we operate within the same environment. But when it comes to institutional survival, uh, that will depend upon the school's cost and position in its local market. Dean, I'd like to invite you now to give any thoughts that we haven't things that we haven't discussed, we haven't covered. I'm, I'm particularly interested. Um, something that we haven't really discussed is the the mood and the pulse of the students now um, in, in talking to other deans, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of anger. And while there still is a lot of anger, it seems that the mood of the students has shifted more to a hopelessness or despair or just fear and worry um, as we start to law schools and in conjunction with the ABA and other um, people who are tallying statistics and whatnot as more information becomes available, as there becomes more transparency, as 
issues such as this are covered more broadly in the media so that students are more equipped with, with a, a realistic outlook of the market, how do we, what are things that you hope to see to, to change that mood, to, to change that view of the profession and, and that just trying to, trying to figure out ways that, that, you know, people will be glad to be part of this profession again, to look upon it and say, yes, that things are happening, they're moving in the right direction. Uh, uh, I would say uh, that uh, I think part of it is being uh, candid about and recognizing with all the different constituencies of the law school of the situation. I think there's been a, a sense that people aren't um, aren't addressing the realities. And in fact, I'll, one of the things I find a, a little bit uh, ironic in some of these discussions, I think uh, Brian's absolutely right that that some of the things he's talking about, about um, the faculty salaries being less, and I agree with him 100%. I mean, uh, we could offer, and, and I think law schools uh, can and should offer, lower starting salaries than, they'll st uh, than they have even uh, uh, perhaps around the time I was hired and still attract very good quality faculty. But the interesting thing is that's referred to as apocalyptic. Um, and I think you're right. In legal academia, academics do, legal academics see some of this about changing workloads, et cetera, as extreme. But I talk to our graduates um, who are in law firms and who are working for government offices where this is what they've been living with the last few years to make their ends meet. Um, and so I feel very compelled to be candid and to address this stuff uh, very seriously to be uh, to, to, about how we are using our students' tuition money, uh, partly because I know what, what um, other employers have gone through um, and our graduates are going through uh, in uh, operating their practices. Uh, and that the sense uh, among some that we should somehow be immune to this, that faculty getting raises at the same time that they're uh, that we see law firms and their graduates taking pay cuts um, is there's, a, there's an unreality to it, uh, and so it's, it's addressing some of this head on, uh, so that we understand we don't seem like we're out of touch. Uh, and I think, and again, not to say that faculties and, and deans necessarily um, have been, but I think maybe we haven't been clear enough and haven't been open enough in talking about uh, the realities that face law schools and what we're trying to do uh, to be on top of it and how. We are concerned, truly, deeply concerned about these issues. I mean, not a day goes by that I don't think about um, job placement, uh, that I don't think about and look at what our uh, debt load is and how we can, sooner rather than later, uh, restaff doing a strategic plan that takes into account this idea of restaffing so that um, our costs are different. Um, again, there are challenges in terms, as Brian said, in terms of when that turnover will occur. Um, but some law schools are at a generational point where that will happen uh, in the next five years or so, and not just going back in and hiring uh, in an undisciplined way to re replace Professor so-and-so, uh, but to actually think through it in a way that uh, you plan over the next five to ten years to be a different place when you come out on the other side. But I think that the mood changes I've seen among students, alumni, faculty, and staff uh, if there's honesty and candor uh, about the situation and, and, and showing meaningfully how you're, you're, you're behaving differently to address it, not behaving in the same way, expecting a different outcome, I think is really important uh, to, uh, to, to giving people confidence uh, that not that all is well, uh, but that you're not, but that you're working on something and, and, and seeking reasonable solutions. I, I agree with um, with what Dean McGreal is saying. Um, you know, 
I do think that there, I'll go a little bit further and say that I do think that among some faculty members there is a, a bit of detachment from the realities that, are, that students are facing, that, that um, lawyers are facing about what's going on in, in pay uh, in the legal profession. Um, and so I think that we, we will all, as law schools, have to address that um, issue and, and will address that issue um, if we intend to survive. Um, I, I think that that one of the, the things that may come out of this that, that we look back uh, on as a good is that um, those law school students who, who do go to law school will do so, I think, increasingly because they have a real passion for this profession and um, and, and that it's something that, that uh, they, they really want to do and that it ceases to be sort of a, uh, you know, I have my poli-sci undergrad, I don't know what else to do. Um, let me go law school type of proposition. I think that I think that has happened. Uh, you know, anecdotally, I hear that sort of um, uh, justification for going to law school uh, from students sometimes, and I and I think that it's important that you know students are thinking very carefully about uh, their career and whether they really want to do this or whether this is just um, whether they're in it. Uh, purely for uh, you know a, a perceived um, easy six-figure six-figure income. So um, uh, I think that that we'll probably see students that uh, care more about the law, care more about um, uh, helping people through the law. I, I see this. Uh, a lot of our students uh, come to, come to law school and want to work. Uh, with legal aid, want to work in, in the, the public sector for non-governmental organizations, and, uh, and there's a real passion there, and that's that's driving their pursuit of this degree, even though it's difficult and expensive. Uh, Professor Tamanaha, I know there are many issues that we can discuss and a lot of different avenues that this conversation could take just in the short time period that we have, though, for today's discussion. Is there anything that you'd like to add as a final thought? on what we should consider and what the future of the profession is going to look like? Uh, the, the law school, the credibility of, of law schools, I believe, uh, is essentially has is, is been ruined. And I don't want to say forever, but certainly for a generation. And the way to, to begin moving in the right direction, just at a fundamental level, is for law schools to be forthcoming about information about employment. Uh, the, we, we are still not doing this, and by forthcoming, I mean not providing all kinds of information crafted in a way that, that, that is difficult to understand. I mean every law school ought to put on its website, this percentage of the class got jobs as lawyers. These are the kinds of jobs they are. We should post uh, information about salaries. Uh, this, this, is, this is about selling a product in a way that people come in knowingly. And there's all kinds of talks of, talk about, well, they should have known better, uh, they should have done better research, they made bad choices. And I think the starting point for law schools is that we should behave in a way that, that, that's honorable and you know, that lives up to our standards, lives up to the standards of, of the profession. Uh, and... You know, I the the sad thing about this for me is that that we're despite all of that, you can look on on law school websites today and still find information that's very hard to understand, 
and is is uh, essentially uh, hiding the ball. Uh, that's a start, and and I, I believe other things. Uh, we have we have so much to go. It's hard to say anything, but I'd like us to start right there. Uh, and, and the lawsuits against schools, and we don't know how they'll go, and and they may well fail. But it's a spectacle uh, that only reinforces um, attitudes uh, that that we that we have we're we're doing something wrong. And I, I think a starting point really is for us to really look at ourselves and say, okay. Well, we have to change how we how we carry ourselves, present ourselves, and then ultimately how we operate. Thank you, Brian. I'd also like to thank the deans for joining us, as this is all the time we have for today's discussion. I encourage our listeners to post their reactions to today's talk on abajournal.com, where we'll continue to cover the paradigm shift and its effects facing the profession today. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.